Welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am a professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And today I am going to read the first part of a letter to a young comrade, which I introduced in the last episode, which uh, I think is so interesting. It was included in a House Un-American Activities report about, you know, the influence of world communism and the deleterious influence of communist ideology on the family. And of course, you know, this is taken to be somehow representative of Alexandra Kolontai's ideas and thoughts. And as I said, this translation that I have is in English. Um, It was translated from the Russian to the Spanish and published in Madrid. And then a friend of Alexandra Kolontai uh, by the name of Isabel de Palencia had uh, it translated into English again so that she could publish it in her book, which is a biography of Alexandra Kolontai from 1947. So without further ado, I am going to read this and then uh, we'll have a little discussion in this episode and then I'll conclude with the second half of the essay in the next episode. So this is A Letter to a Young Comrade. Young comrade, you ask me what position love occupies in the proletarian ideology. You seem surprised that in moments such as these, young workers should be absorbed with questions of love and everything connected with it, as much, if not more, than with the great problems that must be solved by the workers' republic. Let us look together for an explanation of this fact and for the answer to the first problem. What position does love occupy in the proletarian ideology? You must remember that Russia is at present a field of battle between two civilizations, two ideologies that give rise to new conflicts day by day. The victory of communist principles and ideals in politics and economics necessarily produced a revolution also in the common concept of world principles and in the spiritual forces of humanity. Already one can appreciate the changes that are taking place in the old concepts of life, society, work, and norms of conduct, that is to say, in what regards the so-called morality. Sexual relations are an important part of those norms. The revolution in the ideological field will complete the transformation brought about in human thought during the five years of the Republic. As the distance between the two ideologies, the bourgeois and the proletarian, grows, new problems arise that must be solved. Among them, the problem of love, which humanity has through its history solved in various ways, according to the time and the idea which characterized the spirit of the epoch, in other words, its culture. In Russia, during the Civil War, the attention of the people was taken up with passions and feelings that had nothing to do with the affection between man and woman. Who could possibly seriously worry about the sufferings of love during the years in which the specter of death was threatening them all? The only question then was, who will win? Will it be progress or will it be reaction? There are neither opportunities nor psychic energies enough for the joys and tortures of love. 
The biological instinct of reproduction, the simple voice of nature, took the situation in hand. Men and women entered into marriage as easily as they were divorced later, without frenzy and without tears. Prostitution began to disappear, and the free union between the sexes, without commitments, took its place. Biological instincts were the only factors. The beauty that should attend love was absent. Only two forms of sexual union existed then. The marriage consolidated by time, that the very seriousness of the moment made more enduring and stronger in comradeship, and those other marriage relationships entered in merely to satisfy a passing need and cast off as rapidly as they had been accepted. The brutal instinct of reproduction is what I call the wingless eros. It does not absorb our psychic forces and is entirely different from the winged eros, which brings forth a feeling woven with different emotions in the heart and the spirit. The revolutionaries had no time to allow themselves to be mastered by the latter sentiment. In those days, no one could afford to spend strength in feelings that could contribute nothing, directly at least, to the triumph of the revolution. The individual life, which should be the foundation of matrimony, exacts a great deal of psychic energy. Now the picture has changed. The USSR has entered into an epoch of relative peace, an epoch in which it is necessary to fix and develop what has been obtained and conquered. Until the proletariat has assimilated the laws that govern the creation of material wealth and of the powers that direct the feelings of the soul, humanity will not triumph all along the ideological front as it has triumphed in the field of military strength and work. Now, I'm just going to pause here for a second and say, obviously, this letter to a young comrade has many resonances to the letter uh, that we read very early in this podcast, Make Way for Winged Eros, a letter to working youth. I think that this version of it, which, as I said, is is translated into Palencia's book, is a, is a, is a fascinating statement of this idea that the revolution might actually be successful militarily and in terms of reorganization of the labor force and the abolition of private property. But Kolontai here is very clearly stating that there's still a lot of work to be done in our private lives for the revolution to be fully accomplished. So she's thinking about love as and, and sexual relations specifically as a way of bringing the revolution from the public sphere also into the private sphere. And this is a really key intervention that Kolontai makes. I really want to emphasize that, and I think it's really important as we're reading through this version of the essay here. Okay, back to Kolontai. Now that the atmosphere brought about by the fight has been cleared up, man has turned to other things and is claiming his rights in love. The instinct of reproduction is no longer enough. Men and women do not come together as they did during the revolution. They do not want a passing union merely to satisfy their sexual instincts. They are beginning to live love with all the suffering that this may entail. 
Intellectual needs grow day by day within the Soviet Republic. There is a hunger for knowledge in science, in art, in literature, and in the theater. Men look, too, for a new form in the problems of love. This is not a sign of reaction or decadence. On the contrary, love is not only a biological force but a social factor. In all the periods of human development, it has been considered an indispensable and inseparable part of the intellectual culture of each epoch. In the ideology of the workers, the greatest importance should be given to another aspect of this feeling, that one which can contribute real benefits to collective interests. Love cannot be considered merely as a private affair, interesting to just one man and one woman, but a principle of union of great value for the community. And we must not forget that throughout the historical development of humanity, lines of conduct have been marked out indicating when and under which conditions love could be considered legitimate and when not. In the first place, its position corresponded to the interest of the community and love was considered illegitimate when in conflict with those interests. History shows us in very definite form the changes in the field of love that have taken place through the centuries. In patriarchal times, love was considered in the light of friendship between two persons of the same tribe, friendly love devoid of sexual passion. For love at the time was a civic virtue, and love between man and woman was of no social value. A man who was ready to risk his life for his beloved was strictly censured. All of the writings of olden times condemn the love of Paris and Helen, which gave origin to a war that brought unhappiness to humanity. Later, in feudal times, the important factor was the family. In order to be considered virtuous, a man had in every case to sacrifice himself for his family and its traditions. Women had always to be led, when making their choices, by those same family interests. In feudal times, love and matrimony did not march together. Although then, for the first time, women began to acquire certain rights. Women could expect to find in their adorers the highest qualities of courage and endurance. The knight had to show he was ready to carry out great enterprises in honor of his lady, and through this belief that the conquest of a woman's heart was the noblest of enterprises, love was placed at almost inaccessible heights. Carried away by their imagination, the knights of the Middle Ages even ended up falling in love with women they did not know, such as Cervantes tells us of in his Don Quixote and Dulcinea. In the 14th and 15th centuries, the accumulation of wealth in each family transformed the conception of marriage. Money became the basic reason for the union of man and woman. And so on through the ages, the conception of the feeling of attraction of the sexes changed according to the needs of the community. The new communist society is built on principles of comradeship and solidarity. And if it is to be really strong, it must comprehend every aspect of human feeling. Love must strengthen not only the bonds of matrimony and of the family, but also those that are necessary for the development of collective solidarity. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and stop right there, and I will finish reading the second part of this essay next episode. But I 
First of all, I obviously want to highlight that there are extreme similarities between this piece and the piece that we read earlier, Make Way for Winged Eros. This is sort of a condensed version of Alexandra Kollontai's thought. And what I find so interesting about this version, as I said, is that it was included in this House on American Activities report. I think what's really interesting here is, you know, she's doing this same sort of Marxist analysis of love as somehow being an ideological part of the superstructure that changes depending on the material relations of society. So in antiquity, there's one version of love. In feudalism, there's a different version of love. In capitalism, there's yet another version. And in socialism, there will be this new kind of love. So two things that she's doing in this essay are really important. The first is she's saying to her young comrades who are clearly very interested in these ideas and questions about human relations is that this is a legitimate question of the revolution. Unlike some of the other male Bolshevik leaders who wanted to ignore these questions of love and sexual relations and marriage as sort of unseemly things for revolutionaries to be discussing, Kolontai is absolutely 100% saying this is a legitimate concern of the revolution. The way that people live their lives, the way that people organize their romantic relationships, the way that people organize their comradeships is of essential importance to the longevity and the possibilities of the long-term survival of the revolution. And that obviously during the Civil War and, you know, the First World War and the Civil War and then the famine that followed, people were going to be having, you know, she calls them sort of temporary marriages. They sort of, you know, they get, they, they engage in marital relations as quickly as they break up those marital relations. And of course, this is Colin Ty's way of saying that people are basically just randomly hooking up with each other because the biological instinct for sex overcomes them. They have other things to deal with in the revolution. They're not really thinking about forging relationships or starting families. And so that period of Soviet society, as far as she's concerned, is over. She makes very clear in this essay, if, you know, if it's not clear in Make Way for Winged Arrows, she certainly makes clear in this essay that she calls that kind of random hookup culture wingless arrows. She sees it as a, you know, biologically necessary and perfectly natural form of sexual relations, completely understandable given the circumstances of the revolution and the civil war but that there is a higher form of love that she is recommending and that she is hoping will develop in the Soviet Union. And of course, that is the winged eros. And that is this idea that the love between two people, and of course, you know, she's talking here about compulsory heterosexuality. She's primarily talking about men and women because that's, you know, this is 1923 in Russia and that's what she's got on her mind. She's talking very clearly that there's going to be this whole other aspect of love, which is based on comradeship and compatibility and intellect, shared intellectual interests and shared interest in, you know, pushing forward the goals of the revolution. And so she says that, and I think this is really important. She says that, look, you cannot build a society that is trying to reimagine the world, reimagine property relations, reimagine proletarian control over the means of production, reimagine centuries of patriarchal authority and tsarist autocracy, and just ignore 
right? The way that we fall in love, the way that we relate to members of the opposite sex or the same sex or our colleagues and comrades and whatever. The discussion about the private sphere, the discussion of how we build a more collective and collaborative society, how we sort of share our love and attention and affection laterally, and not just individually within our romantic relationships, but more broadly, how those romantic relationships can help, you know, broaden the sort of sum total of affection and love and emotional robustness of the collective. I mean, she has a really different vision of romantic love, this winged eros than the vision of romantic love that comes down to us from the Western tradition of capitalism, which is very much about like finding your soulmate and then having this kind of individual, very hyper-individualized relationship, monogamous relationship with this other person, rather than having a relationship with somebody whereby the love that you share with this other person somehow also contributes to a kind of greater store of generalized love that supports the society. It's a very, very different way of thinking about human relationships. And I think that this is a pretty radical essay in the sense that the reason that Huac included it in its you know, House on House on American Activities report on communist ideology is that it is very threatening. I mean, she's very clearly criticizing all sorts of relationships that are based on economic transaction. That's, you know, pretty par for the course when we're talking about Alexandra Kollontai. But she's also suggesting very concretely that love should be something that fuels a kind of broader social collective love of society. And that if you reimagine your personal relationships with your significant others, and you don't think of those relationships as somehow exclusive ownership relationships between two people, but as a node in which love is produced and created And then somehow that individual um, love between two people then feeds a kind of broader culture of love and collectivity with the entire society. That is really threatening to Americans um, in in the 50s when they're reading this stuff for the first time. Like not only are they threatened by the breakdown of the nuclear family or the breakdown of some sort of version of monogamy, but they're really threatened by this idea that changes in our love lives, changes in the way we relate to people in our sexual relations might actually change the political economy. And, and, you know, and obviously this happens in the United States in the 60s with the summer of love, the whole kind of sexual revolution in the United States that sort of follows the advent of the birth control pill and the whole hippie movement and um, all of that also does have real concrete effects on the larger political economy. And so in some ways, Kolontai is really pointing to something that's very, very powerful and that we often lose sight of when we think about revolutionary politics. We always think about the public sphere and we talk about, you know, raising minimum wages or nationalizing or socializing the means of production or creating wider social safety nets. But we have to really think about these changes, concomitant changes that happen in the private sphere that also have important impacts on the wider political economy of society. So I'm going to stop there. I'll read the rest of the essay in the next episode. 
As always, thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight.